This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. In 2015, at the height of the K-beauty craze, journalist Elise Hu moved to Seoul, South Korea, and lived there with her husband and three daughters, and saw the true cost and toll of the pursuit of beauty. Social media has made us more aware of our appearance. Injectables, expensive facials, and even plastic surgery are becoming an increasingly normal part of daily life. They're also more accessible than ever to anyone that wants to change the way they look. According to the Grandview Research and the American Med Spa Association, there was a 13.8% increase in those procedures from 2020 to 2021 alone, and around 88% of individuals going to a med spa were female. Today, Elise Hugh joins us to talk about her book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And for our listeners, let us know if you have a beauty routine. What does that look like to you? And do you consider it self-care? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And now we have Elise joining us from Los Angeles. Elise, thanks for being with us this morning. I'm delighted to be here. Good morning. A very early morning for you, too. (laughs) Good West Coast morning over here where the sun has yet to come up. Right. And now our sun here is blasting. So (laughs) we took some sun from you. Um, So I I guess much like when you were in Korea, you've got a little bit of a a time difference here. And that's kind of where I want to start this conversation is, you know, when you first moved to Korea, can you tell us what were some of your first impressions of the landscape of where you were living? Because you talked about streets where you were seeing multiple spas um, just, you know, on one single strip. And it's funny because I also see that a lot here in Connecticut. Well, it wasn't just spas. It was also a lot of floor-to-ceiling images of of advertisements and ideal women, you know, and it was not just signage, but also just giant billboards and light up kind of before and after (laughs) messages and advertisements and just a real bombardment of images of perfection. And I think what was really sort of disconcerting or disorienting about it is that when you're constantly bombarded with perfect or what marketers marketers and advertisers were deeming as perfect, you feel less confident in your own smile or your own hair or skin or legs or, you know, name that body part. And because it was such a shock to your senses, I think, Were you as aware of your appearance before moving to Korea? Because you talk a bit in the book about your time modeling when you were younger. And of course, you know, appearances, it's not uh, a single issue in a single country. We see that globally. But, you know, were you aware? Like, you know, what was your what were your thoughts? Yeah, I sort of came to a detente or a disengagement with beauty work and beauty practices after my teenage years because I grew up in the late 90s and the early aughts. And that was a time where there was a real focus on thinness. I remember Allie McBeal and kind of Kate Moss and Heroine Chic and all of that. And so when I was coming up, we were... and I think a lot of elder millennials like me are reckoning with this now, we were really kind of trying to achieve a thinness standard that was beyond thin. And that created a lot of angst and anxiety for me in my adolescence. And so when I, after those years, I really kind of disengaged from chasing that and came to a kind of 
place where I thought I was healed from my um, body angst and anxieties. But <laughs> when I was thrown in soul in my early 30s, I was suddenly like, whoa, um, I guess it was triggering in some ways to be reminded of all of these images of perfection and ways that I was supposed to look and ways that people were supposed to measure up. And so there was lots of like before after that you would see in the subway uh, stations. And it, it was kind of, and a lot of that before after had to do with people's figures and their waistlines or their cleavage or the thinness of their necks or thinness of their legs. And so I found that to throw me back in a way to when I was really hard on myself and judging myself harshly in front of a mirror as, as an adolescent and wanted to really think more deeply about it, but kept um, having to be focusing on other things as a reporter because I was the first bureau chief for NPR in South Korea. And so obviously a lot was going on in South Korea with regard to North Korea and all sorts of other domestic topics um, at, at, when when I was in Seoul. So on top of all of that, you know, you've got your daily life things, you've got your professional things, and you also have to sort of face what societal standards are sort of pre uh, the pressure on you. And of course, societal standards are universal as well. But there is a certain sense of openness, I think, in Korea that we don't see as much here, I would say. So can you talk about the normalization of being, being people out there being open about what's wrong with you? Yeah, I think that obviously we judge one another on our looks constantly. And in the US, we talk about pretty privilege, this idea that you can get farther in life if you do look the part or those who are more attractive get this halo effect and numerous research, bodies of research in, in social psychology have proven it, right? That those who um, are taller, men who are taller, tend to be the ones who are seen as leaders or get jobs. Um, both men and women who uh, meet various standards of attractiveness or what are, who are considered more socially attractive end up being ascribed with characteristics that they might not even have, like being kinder or being smarter. And in South Korea, there's also the flip side of it, which is that if you do not have those characteristics, if you do not measure up in various ways, you might um, encounter lookism. And lookism is just another form of discrimination that maybe we don't talk about because it's so familiar, um, but it has potential for harm. Um, lookism is discrimination where you're just judged on your appearance. and it is an extension of beauty culture. And I'll talk about beauty culture a lot over the course of our conversation. It's kind of diet culture's fraternal twin. It's a system of beliefs that defines beauty as how much you conform to current beauty standards. Right. And before we get there, I do want to get an idea of if you were to describe what K-beauty is to someone who has no idea what it was or what it is, you know, how would you describe it? So I include a pretty, I have a pretty broad definition of K-beauty. When we talk about K-beauty, we typically talk about skin care and cosmetics and a certain kind of practice because Korea is now the third largest skincare and cosmetics exporter in the world. 
Um, but I also include cosmetic tools and wands and lights and imaging because South Korea is also, when you go to a med spa and you might get, you know, a light therapy or you might have various toning treatments like laser toning treatments or laser facials, a lot of that equipment is coming out of South Korea. And so that I include in K-Beauty. And South Korea is also the plastic surgery capital of the world. There are more plastic surgeons per capita in South Korea than any other place on the planet. It's four times as many cosmetic surgeons per capita than there are in the United States. And so I include K-Surgery as well because that density of plastic surgeons and the maturity of the market means that you are constantly coming up with new innovations and new procedures to quote unquote, upgrade our appearance. And we'll definitely be digging deeper into the plastic surgery aspect of this in a little bit. And I mean, reading your book, I, it's just it's so much information. And I'm constantly just, I'm just in awe of how innovative Korea is in mm -hmm. this area. It's just my mind is still blown. I'm going to continue, continue to digest this for a very long time. Um, but I would also love to know, you know, how did you first get introduced to KPUD? Was it a specific moment? Were you out shopping or what was that like? No, even before I went, I knew about, there were already a lot of conversations and stories, I think dating to the early aughts about South Korea and its prowess when it came to, came to plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery. So I knew about that end of it, but almost in kind of a gawky way, like, ooh, that's interesting, you know, but not uh, deeply. And then when it came to K-Beauty itself, around 2015, when I moved to South Korea, a lot of my friends were already saying like, oh my gosh, you need to get this particular um, scrub or will you bring me back these sheet masks? And, and the K-Beauty sort of boom was already beginning when it came to those boxes that you could order where each month you would get a different box, a box of different products and things to try out, lots of samples. Now when you go to Sephora, there's all sorts of K-Beauty brands available, obviously. You know, my tween daughter is already really into Glow Recipe, which started as um, a K-Beauty brand and is now kind of global. But I was already hearing about it, but in a kind of casual way, not in a way where I thought, oh, I need to... I need to report on this and interrogate it as a journalist. It's so interesting to hear how you described it because I think it reflects how I was introduced to K-Beauty because it's, mm. it's definitely not. Yeah, an, yeah, like it's not really an area that I'm familiar with. But I remember when BB cream kind of took the United States by storm. But I was thinking, oh, well, I mean, people have been using that for a very long time. And I was kind of given a bottle by a relative. I just didn't, <laughs> it's kind of very similar. I wasn't really thinking too deep about it until now. It's like, oh my God, like that was actually a really, a really big deal. Um, so like, can you describe also the popularity of the 10 step beauty routine? I think that's really taken off here in the US as well, um, regardless of what brand you use or, or you know, what what you want to do with your with your skincare routine. Yeah, I think that the whole trend, especially among Gen Z, to really care for your skin and have a skincare routine is something that I certainly didn't take part in as a millennial or as a millennial adolescent. So I think skincare in so many ways has become the kind of 
it way to care for your external appearance in a way that maybe has replaced makeup. So makeup can be de-emphasized if your skin, if the surface of your skin and the canvas is pristine and glowy and dewy. So the idea of glowy and dewy skin and the idea of prevention of sun damage and wearing a lot of sunscreen and moisturizing a lot, all of that are really K-beauty ideals that I don't think everybody necessarily just traces to Korea, but um, it originated in South Korea first and now has been marketed and industrialized as and commercialized as a phenomenon that is really dominant in the West. And when we talk about beauty and skincare, I think we almost always hear the term self-care. So mm. how do you feel about this term and how does it relate to beauty, especially since you have experience in both worlds? Yeah, I I find self-care to be kind of an important idea, but not in the way that's necessarily sold to us by these wellness companies. Um, it has been so overused that it's kind of a term that has lost its original meaning, um, which is really more soul-driven and less commercially driven. But uh, I take issue with self-care that can only be bought, right? Mm -hmm. I think that it is important that we take a minute and that we rest and that we sort of nurture one another. And, and I love the idea of self-care that's predicated on community and caring for one another and mutuality. But the more self-care is conflated with the individual and buying the exact right shade of things or adding more steps <laughs> of labor or what I call aesthetic labor to our regimen, whether that's hair or skin or makeup or regimenting our bodies, the more I think that can be really exhausting. And so um, we have to kind of pay attention to it and have awareness of the ways that we're sold by the beauty industry on these notions that we are not enough or there's something about us that's not enough and that we should spend money to fix it. And then it gets really more confusing when they're also saying like, this is a way to care for yourself. But that's also what makes beauty and physical beauty and the pursuit of it kind of an interesting topic, right? Because you are, you do have all of these con conflicting and sometimes paradoxical notions that are all taking place and it's all getting conflated with regard to your our bodies and that's something <laughs> and that, that that surface like you can't get any closer to ourselves right and when we're talking about the somatic right and i want to say i appreciate it in in your book you had talked about your conversation with a customer service person asking her about the steps that you have to do and your confusion is reflected on my confusion because i'm like so when do i use serum when do i use essence is like you said i feel like the labor that's a lot of work. For, yeah, and for, there is no hard and fast 10 steps. It was popularized by a Korean American named Char Charlotte Cho, um, who is the founder of Soko Glam. And it's one of the many companies that have come up in the last five to 10 years that sells K-beauty products or K-beauty ways and practices to um, global audiences and so in global consumers. And she'll even say, you know, I call it the 10 step beauty routine. You don't actually have to have 10 steps, but this idea that there are many steps and there is a lot of stuff to put on your skin and a lot of things to do that, <laughs> that is very familiar and does come out of South Korea. 
Right. And and also with, with the global audience, global consumer, I feel like we are in a very different place today versus, say, 10, 20 years ago. I want to talk about how K-pop and K-culture has also influenced all this. You know, sorry, not sorry that I'm mentioning size Gundam style dance that really took the world by storm sure. in 2012. Yeah. And bands like BTS and Blackpink has done the same. And also with Netflix, we have so much more exposure and understanding of of the international market and what has to, what it can give to us. But can you talk about how all of that culture that we're getting now here in the U.S. has influenced all of this? Yeah, there is no K-beauty without the K-wave known as the Hallyu wave that really came up in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, South Korea has always had to rely on exports as a country because it's not a huge country. It is the size of it is small enough to fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And yet it has, it really punches above its weight when it comes to cultural impact. Um, it is known as a shrimp between whales because it's sandwiched between Japan on one side and China on the other. And because it's lack of certain natural resources, it has constantly had to um, rely on exporting IT and a lot of sort of newer innovations um, that that South Korea, like manufacturing, that South Korea has become a really giant, has become a giant in post-1960 or so. In about the mid-1990s, the South Korean government was looking to pivot and um, the economy needed to continue to expand and was looking for other engines of growth. And there was a government report in 1995 that suggested if South Korea made a blockbuster on the scale of something like Jurassic Park, which was huge at the time, that it would equal the um, manufacturing of 1.5 million South Korean cars when it came, came to what it could bring to the South Korean economy. And so that is around the time that South Korea decided to focus on being cool because and, and exporting culture in the form of television and film and video games and music because coolness um, equals soft power and coolness is something that everyone wants right if you think about high school if you're cool you can kind of do no wrong and so after there was the asian financial crisis a couple years later in 1997 and the south korean economy collapsed that's when south korea really focused on diversifying beyond heavy industry and um, began really exporting film television in the form of k-dramas and that's when we saw k-pop really go into this um, more global, first regional and then global era that really didn't hit in the U.S. until around the time of size Gangnam Style that you talk about, which was in 2011. And there is so much, I mean, it sounds like there is so much different kinds of investment um, going into this industry. You know, what do you think this investing in, in beauty is really for, especially you know, socially, globally, or for individuals who might be looking for marriage, looking for a job, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we talked a little bit about beauty culture. I made a reference to it. So when you define beauty as adhering to certain beauty standards, those standards are often shaped by patriarchy and they're shaped by capitalism because you're upholding physical beauty as a form of political or economic or social capital. 
And when you're trying the, to wring the most out of an asset, in this case, it would be human beings, you can get pretty prescriptive about how to do it. Um, and so then bodies or faces or our weight can become problems that then need upgrades or solutions. And so constantly what I saw in South Korea and, and, and what beauty did was it functioned as an economic engine to come up with new things or new ways to solve problems. I have freckles, for example, and I have never considered my freckles to be a problem, but in Northeast Asia, freckles are frowned upon. And so, and what South Korea does is it has come up with all sorts of ways to cheaply and quickly remove blemishes and like freckles or any sort of skin spots or sunspots, moles. And so when I was in South Korea, I was, I would come up to strangers or strangers would come up to me or people would mention to me after interviews, you know, people that were my sources and totally different subjects, you know, your freckles, you can take care of that you can get rid of those or I can recommend somebody who can <laughs> help you with your freckles. You're like, I didn't it's, realize I had to do that. Exactly. And so you don't even know it problematizes a thing and then presents a solution, a technological solution to whatever was problematized. And this is all a product of what I call beauty culture because it prioritizes appearance over maybe your um, mental well-being or your physical well-being. Um, and it really reinforces the idea that your adherence to beauty standards is the basis of your worth, which of course is quite problematic. Well, and one last thing here really quickly is uh, another thing that shocked me in your book is the fact that appearance, as you're saying, is a part of a lot of processes, including employment. And it's not just for models or front-facing employees, but it's for everyone. So can you talk about what that looks like? Yeah, South Korea is a place where at the time, this has now been outlawed, though it's still still happening, but at the time, headshots were required on resumes, and this is for accounting jobs or government jobs. Um, it's where when you go and get your passport or ID photo taken at what well, passport Photoshop, they automatically Photoshop your image. This was shocking to me, but um, your jawline gets slimmed down, your skin gets smoothed out and often whitened to adhere to the beauty standards of the day. It's a place where parents would buy gift packs of cosmetic surgery procedures for their high school graduates so they would be ready for chasing various employment and this competition um, between other people for jobs. And those co that competition would often rest on qualities like education and how well you did on various tests. There's these big high level, you know, high stakes tests in order to work at places like Samsung, for example. But if candidates were comparable maybe in other areas or other aspects, then your headshot might come into play and often did come into play. And so it was really rather shocking to me that you could do this and it wasn't considered illegal. South Korea has now made moves to change this by outlawing asking for headshots on resumes, but it is a practice that's so ingrained that it continues to happen. You're hearing from Elise Hu, who's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also the host of TED Talks Daily and also a host at large for NPR. She'll be staying with us to continue our conversation about K-Beauty and how beauty culture is influencing our world. 
And for our listeners, let us know if beauty routine is a part of your life and where did it come from? What does it look like and why has it become a part of your life? Let us know at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about beauty culture. According to a study by Grandview Research, the global spa market industry alone is worth over $16 billion. And today, we're focusing on K-beauty, which has influenced beauty standards worldwide. K-beauty doesn't just encompass luxury skincare lines and expensive face masks. It can also include LED light therapy, injections, and a myriad of options for plastic surgery. Plastic surgery, which was once seen as a luxury procedure, has become increasingly accessible. And back with me now is Elise Hugh, who's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. She's also the host of TED Talks Daily and a host at large for NPR. So Elise, we touched on plastic surgery a little bit earlier. Can you talk about what does the breadth of plastic surgery look like in Korea and how prevalent is it? Well, when you're in Gangnam, which is the southern Seoul district, it's a posh ward um, of Seoul just south of the Han River, which bisects the city. When you're in Gangnam, you can step off, um, step off the subway and go up above ground and see these maybe 12-story, at least 12-story buildings where every floor is a med spa or a cosmetic surgery clinic. It is so populated with various options of places to go. And they're named, their English names are things like reborn or elevate. And I can't read Korean fast enough to, to catch all of the different, um, procedures or options that are being advertised on these menus. But just to suffice to say, there are so many of them, you are really at a buffet of options to upgrade your looks. You also spoke to a doctor that talked about an enormous schedule of surgeries that he he is doing. Can you talk about that? Because I'm thinking, you know, what's the quality of it considering the quantity that that they're doing? Well, when you are practicing that much, 
you're getting your 10,000 hours, your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, you know, so South Korean surgeons, I'm told by the American surgeons that I spoke to for the book, have incredible skill, right? They are operating often at least two times as much as American surgeons operate, and, and, and often fitting in a lot of surgeries per day. But that it is fast. So I remember interviewing Dr. Charles Shu, who's a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon, and he talked about spending time shadowing Korean um, uh, cosmetic surgeons and talking about, wow, this was amazing skill. And they had some technique that was really best in class, best in the world. But then also he really worried about how fast they went. <laughs> you know, he was just like, wow, we're doing another. Right. And so, so there is that aspect of it. But what is happening in South Korea now is because it's constantly innovating due to being a mature and saturated market, a lot of the procedures that used to have to happen with a scalpel are now happening with injectables. You're moving to less and less invasive changes or less and less invasive procedures to achieve similar results to what did actually require cutting into with a knife in the past. And especially with the, the sort of the globalization of it, the popularity, as well as normalizing getting plastic surgery, can you talk about how big the medical tourism is there? Oh, gosh, yeah, it has grown at least tenfold in, in inside of 10 years. So medical tourism is a way that South Korea lures those who live outside, so what they would call foreigners, to South Korea in order to seek these procedures. And they lured them in the same way that people are lured to go and gamble in Las Vegas, you get packages. So you can get a cosmetic surgery package. Um, you have a concierge that helps you with what procedures you might want to get done in a short amount of time, how many you can do, what your recovery time might be. Um, it can be paired with a hotel stay. It can be paired with transportation, meals, even tours, you know, while you, after you have finished your procedures and are in recovery or post recovery, you can get somebody to be at your bedside when you wake up because a lot of foreigners might not have a friend that's come with them or any family locally. And there's an entire system of medical brokers. And then this is often funded by the Korean tourism organization to try and lure folks to what they consider the world's capital of plastic surgery and the world leading place for cosmetic surgery. And so, you know, what started as rather small has now really exploded. It stopped, obviously, during the coronavirus lockdown years, but has kicked right back up. So you can go on TikTok now and see all sorts of influencers and them documenting their trips to Seoul to these various skin spas and cosmetic surgery clinics. And you can see kind of the before and after of what they did or just go with them for a day of procedures in Seoul. And it's all part of this giant and booming medical tourism industry that South Korea has had for at least the last decade. And I want to sort of uh, pivot a little bit here, but of course, very much in line with what we've been talking about. You know, it sounds like, you know, however you think of this, there's so much thought that goes into whatever procedures that you're that you're doing or or the processes. But for a lot of people, it's a very it's a very difficult um, sort of process to experience because you also had a very different experience in terms of you went through pregnancy and birth and postpartum in Korea, which mm -hmm. is an exhausting time for, for women anyway, um, where their appearances are naturally changing. So can you tell us what was your experience like? 
Yeah. Well, when there is kind of this really specific norm that you're supposed to meet, then you're reminded, especially during pregnancy and postpartum, that you are really far from that norm <laughs> because South Korea's thinness standards are rather extreme, right? The women, Korean women between the ages of 18 and 35 is the only demographic in the developed world, so among the OECD nations, that has gotten thinner over the past few decades. Every other demographic, so Korean men even included, has gotten larger or their BMIs have increased. And there is this standard of thinness that I had never encountered before or looked a lot like those late 1990s heroin chic women that I talked about. And um, I was, I remember standing in lobbies after I finished interviews on a totally different subject and being offered things like slim wraps to get my body so-called back. And I think that was a reminder that um, our bodies are really never fixed, but when confronted with these kinds of standards, then there's this expectation that our bodies always look a certain way. And it's that the, the way that we, I, that ideal is often kind of frozen in time at maybe our late twenties or something or before children. And I wanted to interrogate that, which was actually some of these encounters with strangers helped lead to the research and the reporting for Flawless. And you're also a mother of three young girls. You know, how does this inform, uh, you know, being a mother? And how were you thinking then? And how are you thinking now about the messaging that they receive about their appearance? What I'm really thinking about a lot now is that they grow up on screens, right? They grow up on social media platforms like TikTok. And what influencers showcase in terms of changes to their bodies was formerly only available to celebrities or insider types. So these $2,000 laser facials or the injectables that the Kardashians get. Just being on social media or FaceTime or Zoom um, has forced the cameras on us, just regular folks, in a way that was only on celebrities previously, at least when I was growing up. And what it's done is it, mod it, it shows us what we're supposed to look like. Social media offers filters that are even more unrealistic, but also shifts the norms. Um, and so now we civilians <laughs> are supposed to look more like filtered standards or influencer or celebrity standards. And what that does is it narrows the definition of beautiful. And when we narrow the definition of beautiful to only smooth and perfect poreless skin, which is true for my Gen Z daughter, for sure, she's constantly like, oh, well, my pores look large. And I'm just like, oh, smacking my head, you know, <laughs> hearing this stuff. Because when we narrow the definition of beautiful, it's widening the definition of unacceptable or unbeautiful or ugly, right? And that's really marginalizing. And it's also exhausting for even those who fit in um, to try and keep up with the norm. And especially with what you're just saying now, I feel like, you know, there's a lot, of course, there's a lot of focus on women because that's the, the higher number of people that are getting these, these uh, plastic surgeries or, or processes. And talking about having children, it sounds like it's almost like a rite of passage for girls getting involved with skincare. But I also want to talk about, you know, how are men impacted by this? Because they also play a huge role in this experience. 
Yeah, more and more men are feeling the same pressure because men are also growing up in front of screens and expected to be on Zooms and be on FaceTimes and be on social media. And the more we are mediated through uh, cameras, the more we and then the more we kind of see ourselves on camera, then the more we're kind of in, in, uh, judging ourselves, we can tend to judge ourselves harshly or scrutinizing our appearance. And so men increasingly are falling under the same pressures as women in South Korea, it's rather um, noticeable. You know, roughly 13% of all the skincare products consumed by men in the world are consumed by South Korean men. And South Korea certainly doesn't have the population to be anywhere close 13% of the world's population. And so it is outsized to be sure. And, and, and South Korean men are also focused on their hair and their eyebrows and grooming and spending money on grooming by going back to salons far more often than say American men. And even though men are having to kind of fall under these standards and have more and more pressure to achieve them, history has proven that women have the most to lose and also the most to gain in the quest to chase beauty. So it's still harder on women. And so with all this pressure on physical appearance, you know, can you talk about what does the mental health look like there? Because I believe you had done a lot of research on how the suicide rates are pretty high there as well. Yeah, um, there are two populations in South Korea where the suicide rates are rank the highest among the 27 developed nations in the OECD. And that is in teens, so youth suicides, and then um, in seniors, so senior citizens, those suicides really rank the highest. And it is owed to a lot of environmental and social factors or social factors more than anything else, like um, the lack of a social safety net or enough pensions for seniors is one driver when it comes to suicide on that end. And then for teenagers, it's often pressure, like educational pressure, all very high stakes testing, all work, no play. Um, and that social pressure and the pressure to succeed obviously also extends to the pressure to look certain ways because your looks become determinant in getting a job, in getting into the next school, or in when you are trying to compete against others in a dating market. And so there is this notion that, you know, we are in individual competition with one another and a lack of care. One thing that South Korea is working on and is was lacking, at least in the years that I lived in in Seoul, was mental health supports. It's still really stigmatized when you do need to get help. Um, there's not a lot of eating disorder treatment, for example, even though eating disorders um, are prevalent and oft often go untreated. And so that's an area where the country continues to try and find or struggle with systemic solutions. And, you know, it's hard to say what the status of individual Korean girls are, but we are seeing, I mean, just from the numbers when it comes to thinness, for example, that these, the, the, the standards that are having to reach and often reaching um, mean that you have a demographic that's largely underweight and that's worrying. 
And I want to touch on another question before we go to a break is plus size clothing has also become much more available here in the U.S. So can you talk about what do attitudes look like around body diversity in in South Korea? Because you've encountered something called free sizing. You know, what is free sizing? Free size isn't free. Free size is the equivalent of a U.S. size two. And there are many boutiques to this day where you walk in and it's free size, which means there's only one size of clothing. Uh, the clothes don't change to fit you. You have to change to fit the clothes. Your body would actually have to change in order to fit the clothes if you're too big. And so I, for the first time, I'm straight sized in the U.S. I typically wear a size eight. And in the U.S., that's considered straight sized. And I don't really face fat phobia when it comes to stores. But South Korea was the first place I would go into a store and they would essentially say there's nothing for you here or those who couldn't speak English would wave, put their forearms together and just make an X like no, (laughs) like the universal no, Um, because there was nothing for me. I was too big. And so that was the first time I really encountered that stigma, which many of those who aren't straight size, those plus size people um, all over the world must have to encounter. And um, that owes to the fact that 97% 97% of South Korea is South is Korean ethnically. So you have a pretty homogeneous population. But even so, it presupposes that every South Korean is supposed to be able to fit into these one size um, standards. And I think that's impossible and it's quite marginalizing. So it was a wake up call to me. You've been listening to Elise Hugh, who's the author of Flawless, Lesson in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. We'll be continuing our conversation about beauty culture after the break, and we'll even hear about ways beauty standards are being challenged. Let us know if you have an in-depth beauty routine as a part of your life, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking to Elise Hugh, who's the author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And we've been talking about the rise of K-Beauty in Korea and globally. And although many have jumped on the beauty culture train, there has also been a bit of a pushback. And women from all ages are also starting to weigh in as well. So Elise, I want to start this chat to um, talk about social media and a lot of the recent developments we're seeing in AI, are they continuing to influence beauty standards? Oh, absolutely. I mean, with generative AI now, there is there are more and more apps and tools to make us look like these warrior princess versions of ourselves. You've probably seen them. And I'm really concerned that uh, more and more of the content on the internet is going to be artificially generated within the next few years. 
uh, because that we know that these images exacerbate existing social biases and often propagate stereotypes, you know, across genders right now, if you go and look at the research on this across genders, when you are seeing images or AI generates images of those with high paying jobs, it tends to be people with lighter skin tones. And then when AI generates images of those who are fast food workers or social workers, it generates subjects with darker skin tones just showing that that doesn't actually match up with reality, but then matches up with what the machine thinks is, is correct. And so when we map that sort of thinking or the AI brain onto beauty standards, you're seeing these really jacked up images of men, right? With like eight packs or 12 packs for just when you're searching something like the perfect male body in 2023. And um, South Korea, has already seen AI come into play with its ID images. So we talked earlier in our hour about how passport photos automatically get photoshopped. Now what we're seeing in South Korea is those passport photos, those ID images that are used for, you know, customs and immigration <laughs> and all of these official government documents are AI generated. So Korea is now <laughs> dealing with this problem of AI apps getting um, used and sort of remixed with our actual Im images, our actual ID photos to create these perfect AI generated ID photos. And South Korea is saying like, these look too unrealistic. <laughs> They're finally crossing a line into unreality or synthetic <laughs> versions of ourselves that it's becoming a problem for government documents. So these kinds of um, points of tension as AI becomes more and more dominant are, is something I'm gonna be watching for. Wow, that's incredible. I'm just I'm just here thinking, you know, it's just that really good face mask that I had on. So you can't recognize me at this moment. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, we've been talking about beauty culture and you lived and breathed this this culture for for so many years in Korea. And I get a sense from the book that, you know, while this is K-beauty focused, it's definitely not specifically a Korean centric topic, but very much worldwide. And I also feel like you were very empathetic towards the impossible standards that people have to face there. What would you say is your biggest takeaway from that? That we have to, the only way to really resist this kind of system where we're all trying to win <laughs> through optimizing our looks um, is really precarious. It's precarious for those who are trying to chase and improve their looks in order to increase their social standing. But it's also precarious for those who are at the top. And so the only way to really change the terms of success or what it means to be beautiful is together collectively because if we stop aspiring to what is sold to us as beautiful then we can kind of begin to sort of dismantle beauty standards or really unrealistic beauty standards everything i do to make myself look individually better can affect the expectations within my community of moms, for example, or within the larger community of people who are 40 years old for how we should look. So I might be able to feel individually better if I Botox, but it compounds the problem of having to have a creaseless forehead for everyone else. So I've started to really think about mutuality more than anything else, and that is my big takeaway. And what does the pushback against all this beauty culture look like? 
it requires that we first be aware. <laughs> I think that our adherence to the system is so familiar that we often don't question it. It also looks like focusing on what the body can do and feel and not solely what the body looks like. I think that appearance and worth are over conflated. And so we have to break that link between appearance and our worthiness. And we also have to break the link between physical appearance and beauty. I think of beauty as something to treasure and to cherish and to aspire to in the way that we aspire to truth or love as a spiritual idea. But so often when we think about beauty, we're just thinking about like, is your skin smooth? And so it's worth really trying to break the link between what we think of as goodness and what we think of as appearance. And it's really hard to do because we live in the modern world in 2023. But I think that's the beginning of a journey to finding our worthiness in far more um, deeper and soul-driven ways. And I love that because with the soul driven ways and the, and the different changes, we've got about a minute left, but I want to touch on, you know, you end the book by talking about the knowledge of the older generations and how all of us will eventually get older. Can you talk about the Ajumas? Oh, the Ajumas. Yes. Ajumas. So Ajumas, yes. Ajuma is the term for the older Korean auntie. And I spent one chapter with them or one chapter of Flawless on them and found that they have found um, a way to sort of care for their bodies without having to look over their shoulders or feel like they're in a competition with other women. And they're also caring for their bodies in a way that uh, really brings them a, f a feeling of wor worthiness and um, sort of acceptance. And obviously it's an entire chapter's worth, but the takeaway is that you can think of your beauty practices as either soul-driven or ego-driven. And so if you are spending a bunch of money on products or spending a bunch of time in front of the mirror or really focusing on you know, how to change your body at the gym, it's worth asking yourself, am I doing this because I care about what other people think? you know, or I want to look better than my peers, which often can be an ego-driven practice? Or am I doing this practice like taking a bubble bath or exercising because it feel good, feels good and not necessarily wanting to change your body? Am I doing it because it feels like a deeper step into myself? Um, so is it tantamount to a costume, ego-driven, or is it a deeper step into yourself, which is more soul-driven? I think that is a question that I ask myself in order to find that perfect sweet spot for um, how to best care for my body without having to end enter this hamster wheel of how to look better. Well, I think that is the perfect sweet spot to end this conversation, although I know we can go for days. You know, thank you so much, Elise Hugh, who's the author of Flawless Lessons and Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Appreciate your time. You can also find a link to her book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And just a quick note that you can join me at Aquila's Nest Vineyards in New Newtown, Connecticut from 6 to 8 for a special event with Connecticut Talk Show host. Grab your tickets at ctpublic.org slash vineyards. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>